Revelation 2, beginning verse 1, says to the angel of the church of Ephesus, write these things, says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you've tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But this you have that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. And Father, we humbly ask as we continue now to worship as the family of God, that by your Spirit, Lord, you would speak things to us individually and collectively through what your Spirit has recorded and written for us in the Word of God. Bless your Word as we receptively ask that you would speak to us now in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. Let me define two words as we begin this morning. The first being productive or being productive refers to generating good results and producing a lot. That's productive. Passion refers to a strong desire, in fact, barely an uncontrollable emotion and enthusiasm about something or someone. Now, with those two words defined, let me say it is good and healthy to be both passionate and also productive at the exact same time. That being said, it is possible to be and remain productive, but not really have passion. Or it's possible to be and remain productive, but really not have passion any longer. In other words, the passion disappears. It diminishes. And what I'm referring to, of course, is those cases where in a diligent spirit, we just go through the motions and we mechanically do things. We don't necessarily have to love what we do to be faithful in completing tasks. Many are going to go to work tomorrow morning, and you're going to mechanically go through the motions. You may not love your job, but you need to pay your mortgage, and you need to generate resources. So it's a blessing if we can love our work, but all of us know how to be productive and remain productive, maybe without having passion, and maybe the passion and desire isn't there, or maybe it's dissipated, and we just mechanically go through right routines. And that can happen in the spiritual life. It can happen even not only to a believer, but to a local church. And such is the situation that we see addressing here by Jesus in this letter to the church of Ephesus in chapter 2. Now, the end of chapter 1, remember, we saw in verse 19 there that really you might say we get the divine outline for the book of Revelation. Jesus told John in verse 19 of chapter 1, if you look back at it, how he was to record these things that were being revealed to him in a vision. He said, write these things which you have seen and the things which are 
and the things which will take place after this. Notice, write these things. The things, he says, which you have past tense seen, that's Revelation chapter 1, the revelation of the glorified Christ that he saw. Write the things which are, John, that is presently, that's chapters 2 and 3, the age of the church. And then he says, also, thirdly, I want you to then write about the things which will take place after this. After what? After the age of the church, which begins Revelation chapter 4 through the remainder of the book, where we hear the Spirit of God say, come up here. And I believe it's a reference to the rapture of the church as the church is removed, and then basically things begin to move forward from that point onward, which we'll see in the end of the study. So chapters 2 and 3 record now things which are, that is the age of the church, the current age of the church. And Jesus, as we saw in chapter 1, was standing among the midst of the churches, and now he starts in chapters 2 and 3 to basically give assessments of the condition of the church. And this is completely rightful. Jesus does this in seven letters with seven select churches, and he completely has the right to do this as the great physician, to make diagnosis as well as to offer the prescription that's necessary for the church to be healthy or to return to health because the entity of the church spiritually belongs to Jesus. Jesus, member said, I will build my church, right? A lot of times we have this mentality. Sometimes we'll go to conferences and, and I'll hear pastors say out loud, well, well, such and such, and this is going on at my church. And I always kind of shudder, your church? I thought it was Jesus's church. Jesus said, I will build my church. The church belongs to Jesus. It doesn't belong to any man or to any board of overseers or to any denomination. The church belongs to Jesus, it's his church. The Bible tells us very clearly that he purchased the church with his own blood. The Bible tells us that Jesus is the chief cornerstone for the church, which means that as living stones being put together as we are to make a temple of the Lord, Jesus is the chief cornerstone, which means everything is built upon Jesus and everything is to be measured off of Jesus and his standards for what he wants. The Bible tells us Jesus is the chief shepherd and the overseer of our souls. The Bible teaches that he is the head of the church. And again, the role of the head in a body is to provide direction to the rest of the body so it functions in a healthy, harmonious, and a proper way. And so Jesus, being those things, has complete right, and it seems totally acceptable and correct that he would give his diagnosis of the condition of the local church and prescribe what's needed in each of these churches, we'll see, to be healthy or to return to health, whatever is necessary. So we come to these letters now in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, and we see Jesus handpicks seven specific fellowships to address. There were other churches that existed at the time, but he handpicks these seven fellowships of believers, these congregations, to address in his assessment. And remember, seven, as we said, is the number of completeness or totality. And perhaps it's very likely that Jesus, knowing all things, handpicks and selects these specific seven fellowships, these congregations, to address because I believe they're a representation, a complete representation of church life. 
Perhaps they are a representation in their totality of different conditions and statuses that churches can be in. And so Jesus picks these seven to address. Now, before we jump into the first of those letters this morning, let me say, which will help with a little bit going into the remaining six as well afterwards, that these letters have application in multiple ways. Four ways, very simply. First of all, literally. They were written to literal existing congregations in the area of Asia Minor at that time. These were actual local congregations of believers that existed at that time, and Jesus was addressing them literally. Secondly, these letters apply to all churches, not just to each individual church, but each of the seven letters apply to all churches because in chapter 1, Jesus told John, what you see, write and send it to the churches, plural. In other words, each letter was to be circulated to all the churches. It was for all of the churches to read the same instruction. At the end of each of these letters, Jesus says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural, right? That's what we just read in our text this morning. He who has an ear, verse 7, let him hear what the Spirit says, not to the church, to the churches. So each one of these letters have application for all churches, for our church here at Calvary Chapel Gateway as well, and for every church that reads these things, we can receive important instruction. As well, each one of these seven letters are applicable to individual believers. Each one of us is Christians. And here's how I know that. Because Jesus says, he, look at verse 7 again, he, that's singular, who has an ear to hear. Churches don't have ears. People have ears. And churches are collectively made up of individuals. So these are also letters and words of instruction from Jesus that every one of us as an individual Christian should say, I need to have an ear to hear, Lord, what are you saying to me through that? Because I'm one Christian, but I make up the composition of a church collectively, and my involvement, my connection to that church, and my condition matters. And then also, which we'll be more brief upon, historically, these seven churches chosen by Jesus, in the order he addresses them, and then the areas of things that he talks to them about, they actually represent quite amazingly, and again, you can agree or disagree on this point, the major stages of church history. And there are some in their study of Revelation who have in a very fascinating way laid out how these seven churches in the order they're given represent very beautifully different kind of stages of church history. Now, that being said, I'm going to make a sad disclaimer. The last church we get to which would be a last day's church or a church, maybe the current generation, Jesus is standing outside the church, knocking on the door saying, could I come back in? Could I be a part of church life? You got some really great things going on there, but uh, I kind of got shut out of all that. <laughs> and that's kind of really sad to think about. Now, all these letters will follow a very similar pattern. There'll be some minor deviations but the pattern basically will flow like this. First, Jesus identifies himself, and he'll draw something from chapter 1 regarding his nature that we saw in the glorified Christ vision that John received, and he'll reiterate something about himself as he identifies himself. Then secondly, Jesus will give a commendation or two. In other words, he'll affirm things that they were doing right, that they were doing well, that he was very pleased with to encourage them that he was glad they were doing. 
Then also we'll see Jesus gives corrective exhortation. That is, he'll identify and condemn certain things that were a part of the church or how they were operating that he was not pleased with. Things that needed to be identified, changed, and corrected. As we read this morning, I have this against you, and you need to repent of this. In the words, he identifies things that he was not pleased with. And then they all end with typically a promise of eternal things, offering to the overcomers, to Christians, that there's something eternal waiting for us. And it almost seems at the end of each letter, Jesus is trying to focus our attention back upon eternity. Now look with me back in verse 1 as we work our way through this. Jesus begins by saying, to the angel of the church of Ephesus write. So notice the letter to and for this local church of Ephesus was being personally addressed, we see here, to the angel, it says, of this church. Now that term angel, the Greek literally is a phrase that just means an authorized messenger. Now that being said, Oftentimes, that term is translated angel in the sense that it's referring to a literal angelic being from the heavenly realm that is sent and assigned to minister to God's people. However, what's unique is that same Greek word, angelos, translated messenger, authorized messenger, is a term in the New Testament at times, the Greek term, that is translated directly messenger. And specifically, when it's translated that way, it's referring to a human messenger, a man that God appoints as a designated messenger to speak messages on his behalf. Easy way to apply this. We're going through the Gospel of Mark on alternating Sundays right now with the book of Revelation. Remember regarding John the Baptist, we read, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare the way. That's our term. Angelos. There it's translated messenger, and it's specifically referring to John the Baptist, the human designated representative that was speaking God's message. So it could be addressed here, our letter, and all these letters to an assigned angel that was delivering a message to the church. I'm okay with that. It could also be addressed to, we might say, the appointed pastor in each one of these churches as the messenger of the Lord. And in a practical manner, that makes a lot of sense to me too, that Jesus would give his message to the pastor to share with the people so that it might be heard and that it might be something that then could be responded to and obeyed by the church. Remember Paul said on one occasion, that which I received from the Lord, I delivered unto you. So Jesus here is speaking to the messenger, whoever you want to believe it to be, to bring this message to the church of Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was the capital city of the region of Asia Minor, so it was a major metropolitan city, something we might think of like a New York or you know a Los Angeles, something like that. Large population, lots of commercial activity going in and out of the city, very busy city. It was also a very immoral an ungodly city as a very big urban center. There were many pagan temples to false gods and lots of idol worship. Now, the church of Ephesus itself, if you're a note taker, Acts chapter 19, you can go back and read it over. Acts chapter 19 gives us the record of how this church was planted. We know that Paul went into this area and planted the church of Ephesus during his third missionary journey. He goes to the area, and with about 12 disciples, just 12 believers there, he begins ministering to this group of 12 people. 
And he just starts teaching them the word of God and pastoring them and shepherding them and helping them and giving them the word of God. We're also told as a part of the church plant in Ephesus, which is very unique, that Paul in Ephesus rented, says, the school of Tyrannus during the daytime hours. And he basically conducted like a training school during the daytime hours to disciple Christians. Can't plan that. That's pretty timely, isn't it? Amazing what happens when you just go through the Bible. And it tells us in that passage there that as the result of Paul's ministry for three years in Ephesus, it was the longest place he stood ministering as he would move around planting different churches, that as a result of that ministry of Paul's teaching the word of God for three years, discipling people in the school of Tyrannus, it says that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord. That is, a lot of Christians became very healthy, strong believers, and they began reproducing the works of God in the regions around them. And this church also had the privilege of some really great pastors. I mean, think about this lineup. Paul came and planted the church of Ephesus, taught there for three years. Then Apollos, the Bible says a man who was mighty in the scriptures, preached and taught at the church of Ephesus for a season. Then at one point, Paul sent Timothy there as an extension of himself and said, Timothy, you go there and stay there. And Timothy then pastored that church for a while. And it's believed that John himself, actually in his latter years, ended up dying, spending his remaining years ministering in Ephesus. So what a lineup. Paul, Apollos, Timothy, and then ultimately John the Apostle. I mean, this was a blessed church They grew and flourished, and of course, one of our New Testament letters, the book of Ephesians, they get all this grand instruction from the Holy Spirit. So this was a very vibrant, healthy, strong church. Look with me as Jesus goes on in verse 1. He now introduces himself saying, these things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. So there's Jesus now as he introduces himself, drawing from the image, as I said, of chapter 1. He now pictures himself standing among the seven lampstands, holding the seven stars. And we know that from Jesus' own words in the last verse of chapter 1, exactly what that's a reference to. Chapter 1, verse 20 said, this is the mystery which you saw, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. So we see a picture here again of Jesus, representative of him standing among the church, holding in his right hand these messengers of the churches to guide and to protect them. But notice in verse uh, one there with me, if you would, that this time when we see Jesus, it doesn't say he's standing in the midst of the church, but you see what it says there? This says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks. Now he's walking, it says, in the midst of the churches. And to me, that's a very beautiful picture there, just a picture of Jesus kind of moving and walking among the church. I just kind of get in my mind there the picture of Jesus kind of just walking among the churches, just kind of surveying what's going on. Hmm. Well, that's interesting. I like what's going on in that kid's class over there. That teacher is very well prepared today. They took their children's ministry role seriously. Great job. Or then maybe he walks around the corner and he hears two people talking about something that's just a little bit fleshly. And he's thinking, hmm, wish maybe you'd be encouraging each other in the things of the Lord instead of talking about that stuff. We're talking about that person. 
And what an interesting thing, just envisioning Jesus unseen, just walking in our midst. Look, the Bible says he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So guess what Jesus is doing every Sunday, every Wednesday, every time? He's walking among us. He's the unseen guest, walking among us, surveying what we're doing, maybe watching if we're genuinely pouring our heart out in worship or if instead we're checking our phone or something. And he just sees all that. And what an amazing thing. To me, that makes me as a Christian, I hope it makes you and makes us as a church want to honor the presence of Jesus, to realize he's with us. This isn't just a spiritual pep rally thing we do. The Lord is in our midst. We have a guest of honor among us, and we want to honor his presence, and that should keep us humbled and make us conscious of that reality, how beautiful he's walking among the church. He's with us when we gather. Verse 2, he goes on to say, and I know your works, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil, and you've tested those who say they're apostles and are not and have found them liars." And you've persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. So look, as Jesus now starts to make assessment of the church of Ephesus, he kind of takes some inventory of that church's condition, and he gives here some really encouraging words of commendation. He praises this church for what they were doing well and he was pleased with. The first thing he says, look at it there in verse 2, he says, I know. I know what you're doing. And that's meant to be an encouragement that Jesus, as he was walking among them, wanted them to realize, I am fully aware of the status of your ministry. I am completely acquainted with how things are going there. And this church had some really wonderful qualities that our Lord Jesus commends them for. Four things, we might say generally, Jesus' complimentary you know, uh, uh, things that he says to them. The first thing I think he compliments them for is basically saying that they were an active church. They were an active church. Look what he says in verse 2 there. He says, I know your works, your labor, and your patience. Then the end of verse 3, he again says that you've labored for my namesake and you've not become weary. That word works is ergon. It describes expending energy and being, as I referenced at the start, being productive. Being very busily occupied, accomplishing good things, getting things done, doing good works of ministry, serving the Lord, causing the kingdom of God to advance. And he also says here, I know your labor in verse 2, which describes, it's a term that speaks of laboring sacrificially where you pour yourself out unto exhaustion. And so Jesus says, you're not just productive and getting good works done, you are tirelessly serving my purposes. You're expending yourself and your energy, and Jesus was pleased with that. He saw that going on. He saw the good work and the labors they were doing and how they were tiring themselves in the service of the Lord. And look, folks, the Lord is looking truly not just for Christian consumers. He's looking for Christian contributors, Many times the way we even just talk about when we're maybe looking for a new fellowship, a place to connect as a church to worship, right? How many people have heard, or maybe you said, I'm shopping for a church. Oy vey, go shop somewhere else, man. You're shopping. 
Maybe I'm seeking the Lord for where he's called me to be, to grow, to flourish spiritually, as well as to find out how can I connect and contribute and use my gifts and, be, and both receive and give, which is what a proper Christian life is about. The Lord wants us to not just be consumers and pew potatoes, but to be contributors, to be doing the work of the Lord. He's desirous that we be productive as Christians, doing good works. The Bible tells us that Jesus has said, let your you know, light so shine before men that they may see your what? Good works and glorify the Father in heaven. We're not saved by works, but we should be a working group of Christians. That's a healthy thing as an individual and as a church to be productive in our Christian walk. Remember Jesus said on one occasion, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And then he said, so pray that the Lord of the harvest would send out laborers, workers, into his harvest field. Jesus is always looking to employ and to empower and to send more workers into his kingdom. There's always plenty to do. And he wants us to be working for him. And the church of Ephesus was pleasing the heart of Jesus because he saw them and he said, yeah, you are a busy, active church. I like it, he said. You're actively doing things. You're doing ministry. Many people were serving in different ways and there were good works and good ministry happening among them, reaching souls, discipling believers, and this pleased Jesus. The second thing he seemed pleased with is that they were also a holy church. Look what he says in verse two in the second half of it. He says to them there that you cannot bear those who are evil. And he says, you seem to not be able to bear up under that. And you've even tested those saying they're apostles that are not and have found them liars. So the idea is a holy church is they weren't willing as a church to compromise on the purity of the Lord's people. They took a very firm stand. They did not tolerate or accept sinful practices and immoral behavior and say, well, we want to be relative. We want to make sure this is, they said, no, there's right and wrong. God's word has standards. There are moral things that please God and that displease God. And this church would not embrace worldly ideas. They wouldn't be conformed to the patterns of the world. They didn't tolerate sinful practices among them and let it pollute the church body. They maintained an intolerant attitude toward immorality. They wanted to honor the holiness of Jesus. Why? Again, because they believed Jesus was among them. And so they didn't want to be bringing things before the presence of the Lord that would displease him, that didn't align with Scripture. So they didn't permit people to infect the church or to corrupt the church or to live in ongoing sin amongst the church. They didn't allow evil among the flock, and Jesus appreciated that. He was pleased with it. He appreciated that they honored his holy presence and that they valued that. And let me just say, folks, that matters to the Lord. It really matters to the Lord. He is holy and he is pure and he is righteous. And this is God's family in the same way. I wouldn't want somebody bringing a bunch of junk and things that are going to defile my family. Or if when I was raising my kids, I wouldn't let people come into my house and act in certain ways or curse. And this is my family. Get out. Again, and in the same way, this is God's family. And God wants his family to be healthy and to be safe and to be honored. And yes, should we be open to broken people that need help? Absolutely. But it doesn't mean we become tolerant of sin and immoral things. 
We lovingly welcome, but we also take a stand in regards to what's right and what is wrong. Jesus says here, I appreciate that you're not tolerating evil. Thirdly, notice also they were a very discerning church, and that's what the end of verse 2 is implying when he says, you've tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and you found them, look what he says, to be liars. So through prayerful consideration and the light given by the Holy Spirit of truth and by utilizing the inspired truth of the Word of God as a standard for all matters of faith and practice, Jesus said you've tested and you have verified whether people are legitimately of God spiritually, you know the difference between right and wrong. They weren't just gullibly subscribing to any person's spiritual influence. They weren't just naively letting anyone teach or following anyone. They were checking their legitimacy. He says people who called themselves apostles and you tested them and said, you're not an apostle. (laughs) You're not an apostle. You may call yourself that, but they had discernment through the word of God and prayer and the Holy Spirit and they identified false teachers and unhealthy spiritual workers. And Jesus says, and you refuse to follow them. And this pleased the Lord. Remember Jesus said in the Gospels, cautioning, he said, beware of false prophets who come in to you with sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. So Jesus appreciated that they were using discernment, wisdom. They were protecting themselves against false spirits and false teachers. And fourthly, he also tells them he was proud that they also were, fourthly, a faithful church. They were a faithful church. Look what he says in the end of verse, or in verse three. You have persevered and have had patience and have labored for my sake and have not become weary. Those terms patience and perseverance in the Greek imply bearing up under the heavy weight of a burden. That's the picture there of the terms under a heavy load, but yet not letting it crush them or overcome them with a load on, they just keep pressing forward even under the weight, exercising endurance, pressing onward through difficulty, pushing forward in faith in a spirit of perseverance, in an attitude of dedication out of love for Jesus. They were remaining faithful. I mean, when he says in the end of verse three there, You've labored for my namesake and you've not become weary. He's saying, thank you for not fainting. I know it's hard. I know things are difficult. I know you're weighed down. But he says, I appreciate that when the weight and the heaviness was upon you, that you just kept going. That you just kept worshiping me. You just kept walking with me. You kept serving. Because Jesus knows life's hard. And he said, I appreciate that you remained faithful to me. I appreciate that you stay at it even when it's not easy or you're weary and you're tempted to quit, he saw them remaining faithful and pressing onward, and Jesus was blessed by their perseverance. He was honored by their great faithfulness. Why? Because Jesus himself was incredibly faithful during hard times. So Jesus delights when he sees us being faithful. Again, what is one of the greatest commendations we should hope for when we enter into heaven? Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Because that's all we really contribute. All the power comes from Jesus, all the wisdom, all the talent, all the resources. The only thing we get to provide in the whole process of Christianity is faithfulness. Is faithfulness. And that pleases Jesus when that is exercised. Well, verse 4, he now transitions and says, Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. So though Jesus was very pleased with certain things they were doing well, 
Notice now he also identifies something that he saw as a concerning issue that needed correction among this group of Christians in the church at Ephesus. He reveals despite all the great things they were doing, they were a faithful church, a discerning church, a holy church, an active church doing great works, but the diagnosis of the great physician revealed they had a major heart problem going on. And Jesus is bringing this up because if that heart problem was not addressed, he's going to say as well, this is going to be fatal, that heart problem, to the life of that church. And so he addresses it. Notice the problem he identifies in verse 4. Look at it there. He says, you have left your first love. We might say in the midst of all the activity for Jesus, they left their affection for Jesus. They were very productive spiritually, but they had somehow lost the personal passion of just loving Jesus in a deep way in their hearts as the foremost thing. At one stage, their love for Jesus was passionate and strong in all honesty. Let's think about it. That's probably the very reason they were doing all the other stuff (laughs) because it all started because they were so in love with Jesus. They wanted to serve the Lord and be discerning, and that's why they were so faithful. But now, unfortunately, Jesus says something's happened, and it's all become mechanical. And all the same spiritual routines are going on, but you've left the meaningful love that you once had for me. You've left your first love. And think about it if you would, but what does first love imply? It implies that initial romantic passion, right, when a couple first falls in love. We call that the dating love or honeymoon love. It's that initial love that happens between a man and a woman when they first fall in love where your desire and your affection for and your intention towards a person is really intense and strong, and rightfully so. And there's that kind of that tunnel vision, that hyperfixation on that person because you are so infatuated with your love for them as that first love blossoms where you know you can't wait to see them. And you're doing all those little things that others think are goofy, but to you, you're thinking, this isn't weird, man. I'm in love, bro. I'm in love. I remember my wife and I were first together. I was working a day shift job. She was, at that time, she ended up getting switched over, and then she was working 3 to 11 at the hospital where she was nursing at. And though I had to get up early in the morning because I didn't see her very much, I used to drive to her work every night at 11 p.m. at night just to be there for like 5, 10, 15 minutes just to see her hot little blonde face one more time because I hadn't seen it all day. And, and, and to just spend a little bit of time with her. And then I was like, okay, it's, it's like 11.20. I need, to, I need to get up early in the morning again. But again, we do those kind of things. And there's just that kind of that amazing infatuation where we operate in a manner with that first love where our world, right, it just revolves around that person that we've fallen into love with. But then we know the reality of what happens. Sometimes that first love, as it progresses, then eventually maybe marriage happens, life unfolds, and then that first love sometimes can waver between a man and a woman. And then all of a sudden, over time, as the daily business of just doing life and responsibilities set in and you're doing life together, it almost sometimes starts to threaten the first love thing. 
And then all of a sudden, sometimes a husband and a wife find themselves leaving behind the first love, and they become much more just like mechanically well-greased business partners. And they're doing all the same routines, but the passion's diminished. The love has gone away. And, and, and it kind of gets left behind. They're mechanically going through the motions of a shared life. And a heart can be diligently committed, yet within all the desires be cold. Look, I've worked with couples for over two decades. And there can be diligent commitment to the covenant of the marriage, but the desires are gone. And all the love and the passion has just disappeared. And they're just functioning together and what God is reminding us here is the same can happen in our relationship with Jesus. It's a love relationship, right? He's a groom. We're the bride. And in the same way, we can have this powerful first love experience with Jesus, and we are so in love with the Lord, and our world's revolving, and right, we're just so in love with the Lord, and we're so excited when we're having this experience with him. But then sometimes as things go on, and we call it Christian maturity, all of a sudden we start to leave the first love thing. And here you find Jesus saying to this church, who was doing lots of great stuff, they were doing lots of wonderful things that Jesus was pleased with, but Jesus in essence says to them, but you don't love me like you once did. Yeah, you do lots of stuff for me. You're a faithful employee, but I miss my wife. I miss the intimacy. I miss the personal connection that you and I had even before you did all the work that you did. In fact, in some ways, you can sense Jesus saying, if I had to pick, I'd take your heart and I'd give up on the work. I can get angels to do work. And here Jesus addresses this thing that can happen to a Christian and even to a church body because Christian or churches are comprised of Christians. And notice Jesus' language here as well, folks. He doesn't say, look at verse four. He doesn't say, you've lost your first love what does he say? You left it. You left it, implying they disconnected and pulled away relationally. They had abandoned something that once existed in the relationship. They were guilty of a process of departure of relational neglect. And as Christians, we can do this, where we lose passion and desire, and we start drifting from Jesus relationally. And again, Jesus is a loving groom. He doesn't want employees. He wants a wife. He wants passion and love and intimacy and relationship. He didn't save us to get work out of us. He saved us to have a relationship with us. And this is what he longs for. Is it possible even today that Jesus would say to you or say to me, Thank you so much for all that you do as a Christian. But nevertheless, I do have this one thing against you. You've left the first love thing that we once had. And the love is missing and the love is diminished. Well, Jesus, like any great physician, he doesn't just diagnose their problem and say, sorry, it's terminal. He diagnoses their problem and offers a prescription, a treatment plan to recover. Look what he says, verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So Jesus basically says three things are important to resolve the issue and to restore the passion and the love in our heart towards him that he wants us to have. The first thing he says to them 
there in verse 5 is remember from where you've, look at the term, fallen. In other words, Jesus says your spiritual life was at a higher status when maybe you didn't do a single work for the Lord. You were so spiritually naive, you knew nothing about discernment. You couldn't rebuke this group and complain about that Christian group. and You couldn't do any of that because you didn't even know the Bible. All you knew was Jesus. Right? I just, I'm just so excited about Jesus. And you knew nothing about, well, I'm a discerning Christian and those group up there, they're doing this and that. And Jesus says, you know what? It was a much higher place spiritually when you just loved me so much and you've fallen from that. We think we've, I'm a much higher status Christian now. <laughs> I don't love the Lord, but I can rebuke some people. I don't love the Lord, but man, I do 17 things in that church. Right? And Jesus says, remember from where you've fallen. He's telling us to have a recall of that higher point spiritually when our heart was passionately in love with him. Just remember what that used to be like. For many of us, right, that was, we can illustrate when, was when we first got saved and that love we had for the Lord. Just think about it. For, remember it. Jesus says, take a walk down memory lane. Just take some time. Recall it. Get alone with the Lord. Think about where you once were, when in that status, when you were first saved, what that love was like when you first became a Christian, when you first met Jesus. Or maybe just a, a season in your life, a certain point in your walk with the Lord, when you, if you were to be honest, could say, I was so much more in love with the Lord then, just in love with Jesus. Or maybe even as a church, oftentimes when churches first get planted and they get, you know, in a sense, a little momentum, everyone is so excited about the Lord. And, and, and all the other stuff doesn't matter. They're just excited about the Lord and being together. And Jesus says, remember that from where you've fallen, that position of higher passion. Think about it. And then he says, secondly, and then repent. It means admit the error. Acknowledge what has gone wrong, the wrong path that we're on. Make a choice to change. The word repentance means a change of mind that leads to a change of action. Isn't it interesting, even just two times in our verse here, and you'll notice that this word recurs throughout the seven churches, Jesus tells Christians, and he tells the church to repent, because repentance is an important response for believers and for Christians and for churches collectively, that there are times that we need to repent of error and things that we're doing wrong and stop the neglect and change and turn around. And then what's the last thing he tells them to do? He says, go back and do what? The first works. Remember what it used to be like. Repent, make a decision to change. I'm sorry, Lord, I need to change. And then he says, and then implement the change. Go do the first works again. What were those routines, those spiritual disciplines, the way that we lived out our life where so many things were so much more important to us when we were super in love with Jesus, right? For many of us, I mean, I remember when, you know, I first got saved and started going to a church before I was even, you know, standing on this side of the pulpit. I was like bummed that they didn't open the church like seven days a week. I was like, can't you get another meeting going, man? I mean, just Wednesday and this and a men's meeting and, right? And that was just, it was just the love of the Lord. You just, you, you wanted certain things. You were reading your Bible all the time. You, 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 were, you were praying, you were telling everybody about the Lord, you were sticking tracks in your buddy's lunchbox, and just you know, all the little things that we did when we were so in love with the Lord. And Jesus says, just go back to that stuff again. 
And you'll find as you go back to some of that and you begin to seek the Lord in that way, some of that passion can be revitalized and can be restored. He says, and if you don't, look at the warning, he says, or else, now you never want to hear Jesus say that, or else, I'll come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now, he's not talking about them losing their salvation. He's talking about losing the light of their testimony, their lampstand. Because as a church, they were to give light and represent Jesus well. And take notice, Jesus has a problem being among a loveless church. He says, I don't want to be a part of a loveless church. And, and I think in all honesty, if a church becomes nothing other than a group of people who gather together socially for religious routines, spiritual disciplines, academic lessons from the holy book, and doing some good works, and that's all the church does is basically become like a religious factory, Jesus just may shut the factory down because that's not what he desires. What he desires is that we be a house of worship where people who love Jesus come together to express love for the Lord and that we're loving the Lord and it's out of the overflow of our love for the Lord that we find ourselves doing all these things. Well, Jesus returns back to something, again, he was pleased with. He says, but you do have this, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So he returns to another compliment. Even though your love for me is diminished, he says, I do like this. You actually hate something that I also hate as the Lord Jesus Christ. Here we find the first time Jesus expresses hatred towards something. Again, that's a strong language. You might want to underline that. When Jesus says he hates something, I want to pay attention. And he says, I hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Now, I'll be candid. We can't be exactly certain what that really describes. Later, he's going to talk about the doctrine of the Nicolaitans became a teaching or a belief that apparently was espoused that led to what people were doing among the Lord's people. The best guess that I can come up with is by looking at the entomology of the compound word Nicolaitans, because we really have no other credible evidence. The word Nico is where we get our English word Nike, which means to conquer or to dominate. That's what Nike means. Laetans is where we get our word laity, which we often use as a term to refer to the common people. So it's a term that speaks of conquering the laity, dominating, ruling over the common people. And it seems something had developed. There was a group, Nicolaitans, who were, in a sense, abusing their spiritual authority in the Lord, where they were ruling over the people among the church, kind of setting themselves up in a hyper-authoritative way as spiritual mediators between them and God. You need to come through us and our authority in order to have a connection and an experience with God, setting up sort of a religious protocol that people had to go to them to be able to get to God. You know, perhaps something like, tell us your sins, and we'll get them forgiven for you. We understand the Bible, so you need to just trust us and allow us to interpret it and to explain it to you. Or we have certain spiritual graces that we ourselves alone can pass on to you. And again, this idea of setting up sort of this unhealthy interference between people having a direct experience with the Lord. You know, I saved a picture on my phone. I found it again this week. 
I saved it from March 24th, 2020. You remember those bad days, right? March 24th, 2020. It was an article, and this is what it was entitled in the Christian Post, I believe it was in. Here's the article. Pope says, confess your sins directly to God if no priests are available during this pandemic. Wow. Confess your sins directly to God if you don't have access to a priest. Wow. Like any husband, folks, I tell you this, Jesus does not like people interfering between him and his bride. The whole reason Jesus came was to take down the barrier and the separation so we could have direct access to God, so we could have direct intimacy. And notice, Jesus says right here, he says, I hate when people interfere with the church being able to come directly to me and to my father because I died for that. I died to give them direct access to the throne of grace. And Jesus didn't like the interference thing, the setting up in some way of being a mediatory type person where people in a sense felt like they had to come to this person as a step to be able to get to God. Jesus despised that greatly. I think it's important to understand his love in that. Verse seven, he says, and he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says, to the churches. So again, notice he's exhorting us to not ignore what the Holy Spirit is communicating, to listen, to pay attention, to respond to what the Spirit's saying. That's important to remember. He says it to each church. It's the only thing he says continuously to every church. Have an ear and hear and respond to what the Spirit's saying. Listen to the Spirit. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. To him who overcomes, 1 John 5, 5 tells us who that is. It says, who is he that overcomes this world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And what is the promise to the Christian, to the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God, Jesus' eternal promise here, is I'll give him the opportunity to eat from the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Now you remember, going back from the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 2, in the original paradise of God existence, there was the tree of life. And Adam and God had perfect harmony and relationship, no interference, complete direct interaction with God. And that tree of life seemed to kind of somehow work in a way to sustain that blissful experience in the paradise of God. But then remember what happened, Genesis 3, sin entered the world, and then God cut off access to the tree of life because he did not want mankind to live perpetually in sinful separation from God because he had a plan to redeem and to restore man back to God through the work of his son, Jesus Christ. But the Bible tells us here there's coming a day in heaven's glory when the paradise existence and the tree of life is going to be restored when we experience full harmony and direct and free and total experience and blissfulness as we live together with God forever. What a wonderful thing to have that reality. Now, the church historically that Jesus would be referring to in this first letter would be the early church of the first generation, which would be from around 33 AD to about 100 AD, which is this time. Now, let me leave this with you. Amazing that in a matter of just 30 to 40 years, the church of Ephesus is no older than 30 to 40 years, they're already having this problem. 
where they've lost their first love for Jesus. And people are trying to bring religious structure and they're defiling relationship with Jesus. Now, can I just say this morning, if that happened, think about the early church from the book of Acts. We look at the early church in the book of Acts and go, oh man, if we could be experiencing that. If they were already having problems, how much more do you and I need to have an ear to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church and to respond to that? Jesus, folks, does not just want diligent, hardworking, discerning Christians. He wants Christians who love him, and he wants a church with passion and love towards him.